Welcome to Auckland Conversations, ideas for becoming the world's most livable city. Well, kia ora and welcome to this um, last Auckland Conversation for the 2015 season. It's fantastic to see you all here. My name's Hannah Ockelford. I'm the External Affairs Manager for, Manager for AECOM and I'll be your MC for this evening. Um, we've got cameras up there because we've also got an online audience, so welcome to them, those people we're streaming live to. And if you want to join in the conversation online, you can do it here at uh, hashtag AKLConversation. So as you know, and probably the reason why you're all here, is that this event is called Close to Home, and that's with good reason. Why? Because the availability of safe and affordable housing, healthy, affordable housing, is fundamental to the well-being of our communities. Tonight we're going to hear some of the innovative solutions from our panel here. They're going to talk about their ideas, their experiences, and perhaps their lessons learned about measures to address the housing crisis that we're experiencing in Auckland at the moment. So in a moment I'll introduce our panel speakers, but I have to let you know I've asked them to keep tightly to their 10 minutes because this is a conversation and we really want you to join in afterwards. So if you do have questions, keep them and um, I'll, I'll let you know when, it, when it's time to, to raise them with our, our panellists. So our first speaker tonight is Rangi Marie Hunia, and uh, she's the director of Ngāti Whātua Orekai uh, Whai Rawa, and that's the commercial entity for Ngāti Whātua Orekai Hapu. Rangi Marie will be talking about their initiative to create an affordable home ownership scheme for Farnell. Jeff Butchers, our second speaker tonight, he's a economic consultant from Christchurch, and he's be, he'll be sharing his work on the Hikawai project, which is a community-led uh, initiative, which is all about lowering the cost of sections for the people of Christchurch. Helen O'Sullivan is our, our next speaker. She's the CEO of Ockham Residential and she's going to be talking about innovations in the residential space, including something called Project Daisy, which I'm to let her explain. And she'll also be discussing Ockham Foundation's Shared Equity Scheme, which is about helping Aucklanders get into home ownership. And finally, we've got Peter Freeman. He's the CEO of Mike Greer, oh, sorry, of Special Projects at Mike Greer in uh, Mike Greer Homes in New Zealand. He's going to give us an insight into uh, panelised homes, which is a purpose-built factory in Christchurch, and why he believes that panelisation is one of the ways, that one of the solutions that we can look to as we look to address the various challenges that's going on in this market at the moment. Before we kick off, I just want to return briefly to something I said before, that, this, that I believe that this topic really is close to home. So fundamentally, we've got a supply issue and a demand, sorry, a supply and demand issue. We've got uh, too many people wanting too few homes. Put simply, the quality and availability of housing affects our mental and our physical health, which means, in my opinion, that a hot market is actually a social time bomb. As I mentioned earlier, I'm part of a global consultancy called AECOM and our tagline is built to deliver a better world. To me that means unlocking opportunities, protecting our environment and also improving and enhancing people's lives. The important point here to remember is that our people are our greatest asset and they need to be front of mind when we look at the innovations and how we're going to create and deliver them, delivering these solutions to Auckland's housing challenge. Now no doubt you're all here because you're, I'm preaching to the converted on this one um, and I'm sure that no one knows this better than our Deputy Mayor Penny Hulse. I'd like to welcome Penny to the stage, she's going to deliver tonight's opening address.
Kia ora koutou katoa, um, acknowledging Ngati Whātua um, and the wonderful panel that we've got in front of us and all of you who are here. This is such a busy time of year and I know the, the stresses and strains that we face leading up to Christmas, but the fact that you're here says to me that this is such a critical issue for Auckland. Hannah, thank you for being our, our wonderful MC. And I want to just take a moment to acknowledge ACOM, and Unitech for sponsoring this and working closely with ACOM as I have in a variety of um, roles over the years. What an extraordinary bunch of innovators they are. And, and Unitech, our wonderful Institute of Technology, thank you for caring. I know and I just note in my notes here that Unitech's Department of Designing and Contemporary Arts and its co-housing innovation team are offering a course to support professionals and communities to develop um, a business case for collaborative housing. That's my little ad for, for Unitech and apparently the um, research vouchers are available if you're interested so check with our Unitech peeps and find out more information. Um, we've got a whole raft of, of of sponsors that I want to acknowledge and you'll see some of the names scrolling through there but in particular Razine and Jib Plus, Brookfield Lawyers, Boffermas School, um, Architectural Design New Zealand, IPENS, um, MR Cagney, New Zealand Institute of Architects, New Zealand Planning Institute and the wonderful New Zealand Green Building Council. These are partners who make Auckland a better place. So I just, I'm going to very, very quickly just cover a couple of things because I think this extraordinary panel have got so many valuable things to say. The thing that I want to ask, and this is a moment of advocacy to you as a, we are singing to the choir, so there's nothing new that I can tell you. You've actually probably heard enough of me over the last year or two banging on about housing. But I'm actually going to ask if we can enrol you as partners in telling the housing story that needs to be told. At the moment, we are suffering absolutely a deficit of democracy. The people whose voices need to be heard in the debate about housing choices are fundamentally not being heard. The voices we're hearing the loudest from are people who already own houses and are already on the property ladder in Auckland. We fundamentally need to change the debate, we need to change the discussion, and we need to change the fairness and social justice associated with good housing for a sustainable future for Auckland. And by that I mean that if you read the media, you would think that I was personally responsible for taking all your beloved properties and building a 10-storey, badly built and badly designed, apartment block next door to you, which will block your sun, destroy your community, and have people move into your area that you won't like and don't want to live next door to. Nothing could be further from the truth. We need to change that discussion and explain that if we are going to house well a city the size of Hamilton every four or five years in Auckland, it needs to be well designed, offer housing choice, be sustainably built and beautifully urban designed. And we have, I just, as I always do, I want to single out Ockham and I make no apologies for doing that. These are the builds of the future that will make Auckland better. We're going to hear about some of the innovative design and hear about some of those ideas. Put simply, what we're doing now is not sustainable into the future. We don't want to put a bell jar over Auckland and keep everything the same as it is. We want to uplift the things of value that we're passionate about and we want to translate them into the right language of architecture, design and building and build a better future. 
that was so not the, the speech that I had here, but I thought <laughs> this is an audience to be absolutely honest with because with the Auckland Conversations, that's what we've promised to do. Let's tell it how it is and get on with it. I want to acknowledge some of the extraordinary faces I see in the audience. Thank you for what you've done for Auckland. And again, acknowledging the panel, thank you for the contribution that you're going to make in the future. Bless you all for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Penny. I, I was told that you went off notes, but um, I'm rather supportive of, of what you said. Um, Penny uh, sends her apologies. She has to run to another engagement. Um, actually, Penny, before you go, I just want to say I think it's really important that you know our city, <laughs> our city's leaders are here advocating for change that's right for the people of our city. So thank you for joining us. And I do apologise. Len is in Paris. It's all hands <laughs> We're spread very thinly, so I would stay if I could. She's off to Ellerslie. So, as I mentioned uh, earlier, our first speaker is Rangimarie Hunia, and she's the director of uh, Nati Fatua Orekai Fai Rawa. She's a believer in smart and sustainable outcomes for our city and for its people, and she's here to be part of the solution. So, please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Rangimarie. That's my way of saying hi. Uh, <laughs> kia ora everybody, and thank you for 10 minutes of this brilliant presentation you're about to participate in. Uh, look, it's a privilege for Ngāti Whātua Orake to be able to stand here today and to share and to celebrate some of the stuff we've been up to. Um, this is around innovative housing, and we're going to show what we've uh, been doing in our neck of the woods. So for those of you who don't know where Paradise might be, Oh, I'll start here first. What I'm going to talk about is what we've called kainga tuatahi, and this is going to be your Māori lesson for the day, whānau. Uh, kainga. Kainga is the Māori word for home. And tuatahi, tahi is one, tuatahi is the first. And so kainga tuatahi means the first home. And so, you know, we're pretty smart in Ngāti Whātua. We thought, that's what we're going to call it, because this is around first-time home ownership. And the other thing about uh, first is that after a first comes a second. And if you're like me and you're sitting on a board, you need just to have some uh, prompts. And so I always knew that if we said it was kainga tuatahi, I was obligated to create a tuarua, a tuatoru, a tuawha. Uh, so it's pretty good, eh? It's strategy. Strategy 101. Kainga tuatahi, that's what we're going to talk about uh, over the next nine minutes. Where? Where is paradise? Paradise for me, uh, the centre of my universe is Orake. Uh, Orake is about five kilometres away from here. What we show here is our headland, Takaparafau. Takaparafau is, was returned to Ngāti Whātua in 1991. It was one of the, and just there on the, this, side of the, this side of the picture, uh, you will see the last piece of land that Ngāti Whātua had in 1951, and that was our quarter acre, which was our urupā. Over the last 65 years, Ngāti Whātua has slowly built uh, back its land holdings across Tāmaki. We've been here for a couple of centuries. 
uh, 200, 300, 400 centuries. Uh, oh no, four centuries. Four centuries? Not 400 centuries. We've been here for about four centuries. And um, we, at the end, by 1951, we had a quarter acre and that was our cemetery. So we've come from a, a different space and over time we've been able to, to claw back and start to rejuvenate and revitalise the people of Ngāti Whātua. And I'm part of that. I'm really honoured to be a part of that legacy to support and advance uh, my people. What you'll see in the centre there is the marae and the marae is the focal institution of who we are. And so we've created a home... Uh, a development there in Orake, it's 30 homes, they're medium density, but I'm not going to talk about me because actually there are a whole lot of people behind it, so I'm going to bring the voices of our people, our friends and our supporters into this three minutes. There we go, thank you. So the brief for this project called for 30 medium density houses for the people of Ngāti Whātua. And what was key in this project was to design a community, not just a bunch of houses. By compacting houses into a smaller footprint, you can actually get more parkland and more play space and vegetable gardens, etc. So the focus on design in this development is enhancing it through a strong architectural language, a uniqueness about the development that sets it apart from other houses and other buildings. It was important for this project to be an expression of a cultural identity for Ngāti Whātua. So the principles are about firstly ensuring that there's a good sense of community here, that it's a Māori community and a community unique to Ngāti Whātua. The principles are also fundamentally based on environmental well-being, ensuring that the housing is a sustainable type design, such as the incorporation of solar panels, solar access, a walkability and cycling networks. With good design and thoughtful planning, we're putting all our energy into making these as good as they possibly can be. When we received the designs from Stevens Lawson, we were blown away. They were beautiful, they were strong, they represented Ngāti Whātua position looking over the city of Auckland. They drew their inspiration from the Maunga and the surrounding environments. One of the key design features that will make Kainga Tuatahi a great place to live for the whānau who are moving in there is the communal spaces. What I'm most excited about creating a new community in our community. I think it'll be awesome to have our kids play with the cousins every day. We haven't owned a home before and so this is our opening into that. I think it's going to be exciting uh, seeing future projects expanded on ours. We're doing this ourselves and that's enlightening for us as well. It means that we're about a hand up instead of a handout. That's the future that I dream about for my children. So the, the theme here today was around close to home, uh, but I want to extend on that really. For us it's about close to home, uh, close to our home, close to our hearts and close to our kids. Uh, we're not going to apologise for the fact that we've just decided to uh, go off on a tangent and build 30, 30 homes. We have 
purposefully focused on first home owners, and we have 26 out of the 30 who will be first home, um, first time homeowners. And you'll see two of my cousins sitting in there uh, talking about what it means for them to be able to do that. The other reality about that is that of those uh, 15 of those 26, they're first generation homeowners. Uh, so never in their family line have they uh, ever owned their own home. So I stand here quite proud to know that we're going to be able to change uh, that fabric for them. So from, from now on, the reality is uh, the chances are that their children and their great-grandchildren and their, you know, moko tua tua toru tua far will know that actually owning their own home is a reality. Tiaroha talked about, well, this isn't about a hand out, this is about a hand up. We see this as being able to create a, a, um, a tribal community that is independent, that is contributing to its community, and that actually wants to see it thrive. So, you know, when I talk about who, who are these 30 families, you can see them, you can see them down there. We do the walkthroughs every Saturday, and because um, I live close by, and my baby sister's going into one of them, which is awesome. <laughs> uh, you can see them, and you can just see the way that. Um, we're changing the fabric in our community around how people engage each with each other, what their educational aspirations are, what their community aspirations are, what their uh, contribution to, to Ngāti Whātua will be, uh, and the closeness that they've created. So that's, uh, that's who they are. Why did we do it? And I can't stress enough for us that we have to be invested in multiple generations. We are intergenerational. I said that we've been here for four centuries and I expect us to be here for four centuries more uh, at least. So that means that we have to think differently about how, how we do stuff. I've got two minutes now so I'm going to um, zoom through this but uh, the other reason why do we do this because we have to be invested in creating love. Uh, and I know, you know, I'm a commercial. I'm on the commercial board, and we talk about numbers and measurements and metrics. But uh, let's get back to the fundamental basics of things. I want a community that loves one another, that cares for one another, and that will do that over multiple generations. So that's what we'll do. Uh, the other thing is, you've got to have a bit of courage. So we've decided that our balance sheet is big enough now. Um, we've got a balance sheet. I'm going to say it a little bit smaller. Well, our balance sheet is around six, maybe, 600 million. Uh, we've decided that uh, we're big enough to go to the bank and, and do it ourselves. So we'll be the bank for our own people. We've got uh, courage in the sense that most people would say, why are you doing that? You know, there's a huge amount of risk that people won't pay the money back. I don't believe that, uh, and we've developed a model to be able to ensure that that doesn't happen. And the other thing is you've got to have focus. So we've got a great team. You saw our architects, you saw our planners, you saw um, the back end that we've got. We've some, got some amazing capability in-house, in uh, and we've also got a desire for our leadership, like me, who are saying this is okay and this is what we'll do. Ten minutes is over, Fano. Kia ora tata katoa. Well, I only met Rangi Marie at about three o'clock this afternoon, but I, I'll go so far as to say this. There's three things, well, three at this stage, that I really like about you. Um, one, that you kept it real, and I'm sure I, I speak for, for most of the audience when, when I say that. Two, you're making usable, likeable communities for your people. And three, you kept time. <laughs> Alright, our next speaker is bringing his personal experience and innovation from the rebuild of Christchurch. Uh, Jeff Butcher is an economic consultant and he saw what a plethora of opportunities after the earthquake, so I might leave you to explain. Thanks very much. G'day, Jeff Butcher, economist, occasional property developer, long-term interest in housing, and a particular interest in recovery from the Christchurch earthquakes. 
It's going to go. This guy is not a giant. He can stand and clean his guttering because that's how far the silt came up his windowsills. Christchurch had one or two problems. Doesn't like advancing, does it? Next one, please. Um, so the worst hit areas contained a lot of low value sections. And the $100,000 or so that a lot of people got paid might have been a fair price for their piece of land, but it wasn't going to buy them a section and the new subdivisions that sprang up to cater for them. And we've had a lot of new subdivisions. By Auckland standards, it's trivial, I, I understand that, but by Christchurch standards, it was quite significant. Also, a lot of, lot, lot of people lost significant equity in their property. Um, not always on a dollar sense, but they used to own a house, and if they could buy a new house, they could only own three quarters of it because they had to buy in a more expensive area. Next slide, yeah, thanks. I think a lot of us have an idyllic view of a suburban development nestled in some trees. That's kind of where we'd like to live, and I don't think it's what developers give us. Developers are trying to maximise profit, as they see the, from their perspective, and they do this in several ways, typically. One is large sections, although I have to say that this is certainly changing in Christchurch, and I believe up here. We've decided that actually we're, it's just not affordable to people, and so not only are the council pressures to change, but there are also market pressures to change. At times, I would say that developers give us less than inspiring urban design without much sense of community. I know there are notable exceptions, Peter. There are also a lot of covenants, um, minimum size of houses in Christchurch, 180 to 210 metres, square metres was not uncommon. You weren't allowed relocatables and 7,000 houses, you know, red zone, there are a lot of potentially relocatable houses. You had limited palette of materials, etc. And so you tended to get a bit of homogeneity and blandness. My view is that we've got to do something about this and property development involves risk and it involves reward. To me, developers are not necessarily greedy. Now, I know I, I have a different view to a lot of people, I was, in fact, that I was trying to work with. But my view is that developers take the risk and they get the reward. And if you want to save that margin, I was saying to people, look, we, we could keep the developer's margin if we did something ourselves. But if you're going to do that, you're going to have to take on the developer's risk. And there are a lot of risks. There's geotechnical risk, there's arguments for the council about RMA-type risks, and there's a construction cost risk. And as developers, whether it's Peter and a large company or us as a bunch of individuals, you can't actually get rid of that risk. But the one that you can get rid of is what I would call the market risk. And you know, why do developers need so much margin? Because every now and again, by the time they've got their sections ready, the prices have crashed. They lose their shirt, they go broke. If you happened to want the land for your own purposes, you don't have that risk. You're not trying to find a buyer, you are the buyer. So the selection we had was, a solution I put forward was cooperative sections. Uh, you get a group of people, you find some land, we become our own developer and we save that risk margin, the developer's margin, um, and we get a standard residential title. Some people were worried about the name cooperative sections because they thought, hang on, hang on, these are weird guys and they're all going to have to have breakfast together three times a week. We weren't talking about that. I was just trying to say, work as a group and you can save the developer's margin, but take the developer's risk. They're affordable. 
because the developer's margin is 20, 25, 30, 35 sometimes, depends how good the market is, of the retail price of the sections. So not only will you save that money, but you'll generate some equity because you might have saved $50,000 on the section, but the section's not worth any less. It's still worth, say, $200,000, and when you only pay $150,000, um, you get extra equity, and that's important for more than just the money you make. It's kind of the banks like you after all. Um, I put forward the proposals for about half a dozen sites around Christchurch, but I had very few interested people. And I was trying to say, well, look, you can do all these things. You can even possibly get some better urban design. People weren't interested because it was new, it was untested, and it was risky. And I had quite a few lawyers, though people were really good, they gave me pro bono advice, great stuff. And they understood what I was doing and they could see the logic and they said, yeah, but Jeff, we'd tell our clients not to do it. Because it's risky and as a lawyer my job is to help my client avoid risk. And I said, okay, so you're, you're telling them don't take the risk of buying one of these cheap sections. Take the certainty of not being able to afford a section because your payout's not big enough. And they laughed, ruefully, and said, yeah, yeah, but we'd still advise them against it. So we actually reversed the order. I should have gone back a bit and said, you know, we said um, find some land, get a group, find some land. I changed the order around because I couldn't get everybody interested. And I said, let's find the land and then find the group. And this site of 2.6 hectares was offered to us by the owner who quite liked what we were proposing to do. It looks pretty rural, but it's actually 10 minutes out of Christchurch. Um, you can see that's a big stormwater retention basin there. So you've got a park next door. That there is a repair and reserve. And as soon as that transferred to the council, they cut all those trees down, which really, really irked me. Though no doubt they were dangerous, you know, old willows, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's, it's close to the centre of Christchurch. I explained to the designers that we were trying to work with and the geotech guys and engineering consultants what we're trying to do. And I said, look, we haven't got any buyers. And hence, we haven't got any money because you can't get buyers engaged without a clear plan. And these people say, I, I put forward to them and they accepted the idea of we'll do it on a success fee basis. If it doesn't work, we won't get paid. We'll help you develop the project. If it doesn't work, we don't get paid. If it does work, I said, we'll give you 60% extra. So I asked several different planners to draw me a subdivision plan. Is there any reason that's not coming up? No, we've missed one. And this is what I'd call the uninspired and missing the point school of urban design. Sure, it met the plan rules about density A and density B. This was, um, you know, had to have high density around the outside here. The council had told us that. And it would have been much easier to do, and it's likely what most developers would have wanted from a, a planner to give them. And it created 44 lots. And there have been times, I must say, when I wish I'd done that, because it would have been really straightforward. But I thought it had no soul. Little linkage of the inner blocks to the reserves and no sense of community. This was the second one we got drawn up, and I thought it was much more interesting, Janet Reeves. And then this is more interesting still, and in fact that picture I showed you earlier of the idyllic sort of you know, trees and a nice place to live, this is actually the, uh, the, the formal plan which that sketch was based on. Uh, we, Wendy and I, had uh, $65,000 at risk at this stage, in spite of people doing lots of work for nothing. But I think that's the point. Somebody has to take some risks if we're going to get any different outcomes. And in fact, uh, Rangi Mario made the same point. Somebody has to take some risks. Sometimes you get bankrolled by a philanthropic association and sometimes you just do it yourself. 
I made the point earlier that a lot of subdivisions seemed to me pretty sterile, so we had quite a bit of work with. But in that centre block, we wanted um, to do some more interesting stuff. But I'm not going to talk about that because I've only got two minutes. Um, instead, I'm going to talk about problems you have with legal and buyer protection. You know, you're asking people to put up their money. Um, the prospectus that the Securities Act makes it quite difficult for you. Unless they're sophisticated buyers, you have to have a prospectus. It takes you three months, 80,000 bucks, so we're told. We hadn't got either of those, either the time or the money. Then there's an exemption for mortgages, but not if they're contributory mortgages. Um, I won't talk about some of the other things, but we made sure that I couldn't run off with their money. Basically, all the money, as people put it in, went into a trust account, and I and two of them had to sign off before anything got paid out of the trust account, and it got paid directly to the contractor, so I never had any of the money. And so the deal got done, and this is a finished product, and um, there's a couple of houses being built there, another house there, another house up there. I'm left with this block in the centre there. Um, I'm left with that because a charitable organisation was going to buy it, but they were careful to say, mm, only if we can afford it, and then they said we can't. So it was either Wendy and I bought it or we tossed the project away, and we weren't keen on that, although I would have made a lot more money, and again, sometimes I wish I'd done that, because life's, it's interesting when you're a developer. You know, I... You earn your money, is all I can say. <laughs> the centre block is going to be a pocket neighbourhood where people know their neighbours because they share ownership of a piece of land. It's owned by a society, everybody's a member. This is what we think it's going to look like. Before I could get the subdivision consent, we had to get all this designs done, and that councils are difficult sometimes. Can't have a subdivision consent for small sites like this unless you show us the design. So we've shown them the design, now we've got to find some buyers. Well, what did I conclude, having missed a page? I think that affordable sections are doable in Christchurch, but it's very hard to get people to do it. People hate risk, and so do their lawyers. They want a solution now. Um, the cash flow problems you have, but I don't think they're significant. We actually found somebody who'd lend us some money. Um, we need to make a cooperative process more mainstream to enable more people to afford housing without government support. And that's what I wanted to do in this. I'm not interested in working with government departments. People said, why don't you work with Sarah? Anybody in Christchurch now would say, wise move that you decided not to, Jeff. People want a cheap section and no risk, and they're dreaming. If we're going to reduce the cost of housing, we're going, and sections as part of it, we're going to have not just innovation, but a change in attitude. We have to embrace risk. Thank you. I'm done. Thanks, Jeff. It's good to hear you talking about um, uh, good development can't be done without good developers, and, and 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 as part of that sustainability approach or sustainable approach, we need to talk about the economic imperative. Although I suspect there's a, a fair a, a fair degree of altruism in in your approach to these things. Um, our next speaker is um, Helen O'Sullivan. Um, Helen brings extensive experience in leadership and the residential uh, property uh, sector. She's the CEO of, of Ockham Residential, and that's an organisation that de defines itself as urban regenerators with a passion for our city. Please welcome Helen to the stage. Thank you very much, Hannah. It's a real privilege to be on the stage uh, with this group of people tonight. And it's fantastic to see so many Aucklanders engaging in a conversation about our city. 
I'm privileged to be a part of the team at Ockham Residential, formed by two of my primary school buddies, uh, Mark Todd and Ben Preston. We're Aucklanders, we love Auckland, and we want to see Auckland's built urban environment as gorgeous and as world-class as its physical landscape, and that's what Ockham is committed to, and I feel uh, highly privileged to be part of the team that does that. One of the things I was asked to speak about tonight is some of the things that Ockham is doing, um, which are perhaps innovative, which we think are a little different, um, which we're you know, bringing into, into the field to try and uh, work with some of the issues that we've got as a city. Because we cannot continue to uh, go out unless we plan to absorb Whangarei and Hamilton before we're finished, and I think they may have some issues with that. Um, and so going up is, is part of a solution, but it has to be density done well, and that's something that we focus on. Um, one of the things that, and you're right, this is not working, so can I point at that and ask you to move it? Great. Um, the Ockham Foundation, which is a charitable uh, trust which was established by Mark and Ben at the same time as they very bravely established Ockham Residential in the midst of the GFC. It is a shared equity scheme, but it's structured as a vendor loan. Up to 15% of the purchase price sits in behind the bank until such time as 10 years have passed or the owner wishes to value up and get out or wishes to sell out. It is an interest-free loan for that 10-year term. The foundation makes its return by repayment being the face value of the loan, plus 15% of the uplift uh, on the, the property. So essentially, the foundation's leaving its profits in the development and banking on there being capital gain in the property. That provides, ultimately, an income stream for the foundation, and the purpose of the foundation is to support independent thinking critical thought and fostering a sense of justice amongst students of all ages through educational initiatives. Um, we are commercial developers, so we do have a uh, commercial imperative as well, but the foundation's a really important part of our double bottom line. It is important, I think, in life for there to be something more than just making some money, although making money pays for all the other things you might like to do in life. Uh, and so, you know, again, this is something that Mark and Ben have put in place as part of the, the process behind the foundation and ultimately helping owner-occupiers get into homes in Auckland. It's great for the developments as well because it helps to sell them down faster, helps to lock in owner-occupiers who are, are great for uh, the community sense in a development and uh, ultimately bit new, bit interesting. We're uh, piloted it at Hypatia, which is the building you can see on the left-hand side of that picture, and in Daisy, which is our latest offering, uh, which is coming to market in Akapuro Street in Mount Eden. Our plan is to have this in all of our developments in the future, and uh, we're pretty excited about seeing how it flies. <laughs> now, the next topic, we've talked a little bit about uh, the need to use land more intelligently as um, we you know, do density and do it well. This, I haven't picked on this site for any particular reason except that it is close to um, one of our developments in Wilkinson Road. It's a roughly 995 square metre site in Ellerslie. Three townhouses built on this site, sort of two or three level, couple of hundred square metres. Each property has its own car parking, its own driveway, uh, its own private outdoor space. Um, 
small space, own rubbish storage. Uh, green space, based on measuring it using a property tool, is about 30%. Using um, a, an automated valuation mechanism, these properties are worth, say, eight to $900,000. If they were new builds, probably in the region of 900000 to a mil. Okay, so tragically, that's about your bog standard purchase price in Ellerslie these days. There is an alternative, we believe. Here is a development that Mark uh, did a couple of years ago, 36 Wilkinson Road, Allersley. Commitment that's been made here to the unit title concept, so you're able to put facilities like car parking together. The car parking is all in the front building, um, mostly at grade, it's sort of a quasi-basement, and then there are 10 units in those two buildings on the site, one, two, and two plus bedroom typologies, three level, so walk up, no lift, no sprinklers, a lot cheaper to build uh, than perhaps the pure apartment offering. And the green space is approximately 50%. Market value of these between $500,000 and $800,000. So you're getting 300% more houses at 60% of the price with 60% more green space. And it's not ugly. We think it's kind of pretty, actually. We call this the missing middle. So somewhere between uh, apartments and terraced housing is this missing middle option. It, apartments aren't always suitable for an urban environment. That's Daisy coming in early. <laughs> um, they're not always suitable for an urban environment. They're go, no go, binary decisions. You're committed to 60 million or nothing. Um, they're not that cheap to build. You've got lifts, vertical transport, mechanical ventilation, basement car parking, uh, and the time span, to, time span to consent and build them, 18 months, two years. These are considerably faster to create. They're easier to build. The smaller companies which make up such a large proportion of the Auckland housing market are well able to cope with the topologies. And you're building things with Aucklanders, Auckland households predicted in the next two years, 50% of them will be one and two person households. We don't need a whole swag of three and four bedroom uh, properties for those people to live in, nor at $1.1 million can we all afford them. And you can build these in environments like Avondale and Allersley, places where people want to live near your parents, near your grandparents, near your kids, uh, and you know, Fundamentally, we think it can work and still be really attractive housing. And our next, the next thing I think we're doing, which is uh, reasonably innovative, is DAISY. DAISY is appraised to target a nine home star rating, which will be the um, first apartment building in New Zealand to meet to reach that. It gets there by having um, a swag of green initiatives. It's got solar farms on the roof, it's got uh, rainwater harvesting, external blind systems to manage solar gain, uh, communal vegetable plantings across the road. But probably the most unusual thing about it for an Auckland development is it doesn't have any dedicated car parking. There are two cars which are for the exclusive use of the residents, which are managed through a um, sort of communal car park car management hire system. You can book them, you can use them. You've got scooter parking with that magnificent little lift in the front here in the lobby. It may or may not look precisely like that. Scooters may not be so flash. Um, but 
again, this is a very modern take on. I lived in Auckland. I lived in Sydney for a year. I lived in London for four years. I had not owned a car for the entire time I lived there. Aucklanders are starting to think that that's a possibility. You know, this is an Acapero Street just off Dominion Road. So you've got buses that are right at your doorstep and you're 800 metres walk from the train station. You've got a car for when you want to go and visit your mum in Mount Wellington on Thursday night for family tea. Uh, and you know when you're going away for the weekend you can rent vehicles. The rest of the time you don't have the expense of the car, of the um, running a car. And for us as the developer it means the price points are extremely accessible between $410 uh, and $600,000 because we don't have the extremely expensive basement car parking uh, and we don't have to spread the cost of that across every single one of the properties. Hey, it's not going to be for everybody. Ask us again in six months' time how many Aucklanders thought that was a good part of the conversation. But um, we're excited about it. So to wrap up, um, I think there's a lot, you know, this is obviously not the answer for every single person in Auckland. You know, the Wilkinson Road style development isn't for everybody either. But neither are apartments, neither necessarily is a $1.5 million mortgage. And I think the opportunity for us as Aucklanders to open up the conversation and look at different ways of doing stuff so that uh, we're not Auckland-tron in uh, five years' time. Thank you very much. It's hard to get your head around, isn't it, two cars for one apartment building, but I suppose this is innovation. You know, this is looking at the issues differently and, and starting to drive different ways of, of thinking about things. I have to admit, I haven't been in the infrastructure and construction industry for, for very long, but I'm an observer and I have noticed uh, one thing that is blatantly clear to me, that there's so many smart people who know that business as usual will get the same results as, as we've always got. But what do we do about it? Um, what is the motive? What is the thing that will drive us to do something different? I think that's something I, I particularly want to explore with you, Helen, in a minute, what you guys are doing differently, because clearly you are doing something differently. Right, our final uh, speaker is, um, well, he's going to talk about technology. So we've heard about, you know, in broad terms, we've heard about social, economic, different commercial solutions. Uh, Peter, uh, sorry, Peter Freeman is the CEO of Special Projects at Mike Greer Homes. Please welcome him to the stage. Thank you very much, Helen. <clears throat> As already mentioned, I'm yes CEO of Special Projects, and you might have guessed already that I'm a POM. Uh, I've been here for 18 years, but Special Projects for Mike Greer is anything different, and Mike Greer is definitely different. Um, most people here probably don't know Mike Greer. I know one or two do, because I can see some familiar faces around. So, Mike Greer, I can get this thing to work. There we go. Actually, is the uh, we are the largest <laughs> private home builder in New Zealand. We are out of Christchurch, but last year we built over 1,200 homes in New Zealand. We've been in business now for just over 23 years. We've gone from sole trader to corporate, and we're a group of 42 companies, but we are not a franchise. We are unusual in the big group home building as being not a franchise. We, um, we also built 250 retirement villas last year, some offices, some warehousing, some retail, some cafes, medical centres, church, schools, 
early childhood centres, we built at least 12 of those last year. And a lot of what we do is all together. We do comprehensive planned developments. We do, um, here that's a, a, a graph, uh, a, an image of some that we've built in Christchurch and those are actually were built for Housing New Zealand. I believe I'm going on to more subject today. The construction industry has got some increasing demands on it. I've worked in New Zealand and I've worked in the UK in construction, civil engineering and building for many years, hence the grey hairs. Um, the construction industry really has got a demands on supply, time, quality and also adaptability. Auckland has for New Zealand some very unique challenges, but it's not unique for the world, you know. We need to look around the world and see what's being done around the west of the world. Let's try not to do all the mistakes that yeah, the UK has done. Let's try and do some more improvements in product productive capacity. Efficiency are important, but we need to make sure we maintain or even improve the quality of construction and, and look what we're looking for. But we need to get the balanced approach. If we increase in the supply of the homes, we don't want inferior homes. We don't want inferior neighbourhoods. We don't want to lose the good things. And one of the reasons I came to New Zealand. In our experience, you can get quality, you can get speed, and you can be cost effective. We currently build one in six houses in Christchurch. That's just to give you an idea of what we do. We've built up um, to this 1,200 uh, very, very rapidly. But we also do 90, over 90%, nearly 95% of all the homes we build and design are Homestar 6. We do life mark a lot of them as well. We have our own Homestar assessors and all our, or most of our architects and designers are life mark trained. We also pay particular attention to health and safety. Christchurch is leading the way with health and safety, well, for obvious reasons. You know, we've had a few challenges, as Jeff said, but Christchurch is definitely leading health and safety. Auckland's housing challenge. The challenge is that how can we help? Yeah, we're in Auckland. We've only been in Auckland for 18 months, but we're currently building about 250 houses in Auckland. So you can deliver and you can increase the demand, the supply. We do over 800 houses in Christchurch alone, but we identified there's a need to improve and need to improve nationally. We, how could we do this? We needed to work on something that we could actually affect, something that, yeah, we can try and influence things, land supply, yes, we can try and influence things with regulations and all the other bits and pieces, but something that we can directly affect. Currently, the industry build time is average of 28 weeks. Some is even more. So that we decided is an area that we can work on and do things. Because every time you get a delay, there's a cost of money. Developers, time, it all costs money. I'm not really telling you anything you don't know. You know we could try and work on the materials. We could try and work on the land. But we decided we would work, start off with on the actual time to build. We need to supply more homes and the way we've decided to do that is an innovative solution. It's not world breaking, it's not world you know, earth shattering, 
But worldwide, the trend is towards pre-built homes. Either that be that um, modular, panelised or whatever. But it's also to do work in a factory. It's a, but it's a relatively new approach in New Zealand. It's been tried and it's been tried and in some cases it's failed. What we did, we actually started to look at the world's best. We scoured the world. We imported things from China, Japan, America, Australia, and we tried lots of different systems. Mike spent many, many millions trying out different systems. We needed an innovative solution that would help address the significant challenges that currently is faced by the construction industry, but more important about the people of New Zealand and the people of Auckland. How would we ultimately make housing more attainable for most New Zealanders? That's why we decided to pursue <laughs> panelisation. Panelisation, we believe, would give us the efficiency of increased automisation. It gives less wastage. Typically, internationally, panelisation shows to reduce waste by about 23%. It also gives us greater production capacity and speed. Precision, it would increase the precision. Our plant produces the maximum of a 12 metre uh, wall, 12 metre long wall. Those can be added together. But the tolerance to that 12 metres is plus or minus 1.5 millimetres. And that's guaranteed by the actual machinery manufacturers. And you, plus or minus 1.5 is a bit different than a 17 year old with a chop saw. So, so we do that and it improves the quality. So we're not just looking at speed, we're looking at improved quality. We decided to use a proven system, a system that's been going over 40 years in Germany. It's currently used all around Europe, Canada, America, Japan and other parts of Asia. We decided to go with a proven system. It's actually very, very similar to the existing stickville system because there's less buyer resistance. The skills are available, the materials are available, a lot of them are available in New Zealand. We're not trying to go groundbreaking, we're not trying to do something revolutionary that has not been proven. We think we'd rather use a proven, proven system. We use tighter tolerances. One of the other things we tried, to, we, we ensured we did, was ensure that we're not mass producing homes. So you don't have to order a hundred homes all the same off us. The one, off the first one off a production line could be a two bedroom, single story. The next can be a four bedroom, two story. Thank you very much. I'm going to two minutes and I'm about a third of the way through my presentation. <laughs> so. Concision, what have we done? In Christchurch, we have done a, uh, we've built a $16 million, 6,000 square metre factory on a 12,500 square metre site from scratch. We did that from the first idea to the first wall coming off the production line in 10 months. The machinery is from Germany and every night that machinery is checked by the German manufacturers. We have local um, agents who look after it, but that's what we did. But 10 months from start to finish for a brand new factory. The layout was actually designed by the manufacturers, so that it, of the machinery manufacturers, to give us the best production, to stop double handling or triple handling and various other things. Our material store is an internal material store. So we get timber 
We tried every single timber merchant from New Zealand and not one of them could meet our tolerances. We actually now buy straight from the mill. They are specially, all the timber specially handled and it goes on special trailers and goes straight from the mill to our internal material storage. The state of our machinery, we've got, we're currently producing one house a day, but it will ramp up to three houses a day. Our first baby, just one second, no, oh, sorry, that's the wrong photo. <laughs> Uh, I won't play the video because it takes too long, but the first house, the first ever house we put up, a three bedroom, took us seven, uh, just under eight hours to have a watertight house from the foundations. Just under eight hours, that's walls, doors, windows, jib, um, roof, everything done. So it means you can actually work on that house no matter what the weather. It's there, it's done. We're doing ten weeks from getting on site for site strip to actually handing over the keys. Do they have to look all the same? No, they don't. You know, do we actually have, um, as I said, all different ones? The system will go to four stories as standard, but will actually go to six stories with extra work. Is it the answer to housing, uh, Auckland's housing problems in Christchurch? No, but we've already signed, we're about to start a new 13 or 12,000 square metre factory south of Auckland that will produce 1,800 houses a year. 1,800 extra houses a year. And all of those will be through an ISO accredited factory. All of those will be Homestar and most of them will be Lifemark. And I'm now getting told my time is definitely up. But we're not stopping there. We're doing other innovations. We're already doing parallel consenting, parallel development. We build, we have the frames going up on houses before the roads are in. We, have the, we put the drop crossings in the right place. We don't put topsoil onto sections and then strip it off to build a house. We build the house straight away and save that money. We put the services into houses in the right place. Because we are not only builders, we are developers, builders, and we sell our own products as well. Thank you. so passionate we can't stop him. <laughs> Look, I was just sitting there thinking that it's, um, this is a real challenging issue. On, I mean, it's, it's on multiple levels it's challenging and it's going to take a, a suite of solutions to address it. But I just want to congratulate Auckland Council because it's great to actually sit here and listen to innovation and solutions rather than the problems all the time. Um, I also like um, even more that the solutions that we've, we've heard from our speakers tonight are, are human focused because I guess the problem's not a problem until it affects us. Um, Alright, so from here we've probably got about 25 minutes question time before I invite uh, another speaker up for, for a closing address. Um, so I'll kick off, but we will take questions from the audience. So we're going to have a couple of people walking around with some mics, so make sure you have your questions and, and put your hand up and, and, and have your time and, and, and take your chance to get involved. And we'll also uh, monitor Twitter, so if um, there are people online who, who want to, to pose a question, we're, we're looking out for them. Right, let's leap straight into that question um, with you, Helen. Your organisation is, is, I understand, seen as, as a bit of a leading light in, in Auckland in terms of, of looking at, the, at issues to address the housing crisis. What is your advice? I mean, you're sitting at the table. What's your advice for avoiding business as usual? Have a 
Mark is probably the, the most important one. I mean, a Mark Todd. <laughs> <laughs> but I think probably the primary thing is don't don't be convinced that the rules are, you know, the rules of physics absolutely, rules of weather tightness, you probably need to pay attention to those. Mm. But start with the outcome and work backwards. Yeah. Uh, chuck the rules out the window for a bit mm. and don't rest until you're absolutely positive you've, got, you've done your best possible job. Uh, so don't be afraid to pick up the piece of paper you've spent 12 hours on, chuck it over your shoulder and have another go. Mm. Just because you look at it and go, I could actually do better here. Because mm. uh, that ceaseless, that, that constant quest for it, there's got to be a better way, there is another way, until mm. you're absolutely positive you've cracked it. Uh, that'll lead you into creative thinking mm. um, and you know, new ways of doing things. There must be some tough conversations at your board table. Oh, a lot of fun conversations. <laughs> Sometimes you feel like you're having the same conversation a few times, but actually you go over it, you come out with another answer. It's actually a great outcome. It's a great way of working. Mm. Uh, Peter, I'll give you another chance. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> why, why is technology such an important component of innovation? Well, for us, it was something that we realised would actually have a, a deliverable for us. We could improve the quality and also the speed of delivery. We could we identified one of the challenges being lack of trades or good quality trades. So one of the ways we can mitigate that is to actually put world-class technology and innovation into it to make it, as I said, easier to deliver on site and quicker to deliver. You're clearly passionate about it yourself. Yes. <laughs> you guessed. Do you want to come to Auckland? Rami <laughs> Maria, <laughs> um, you're urban papakainga. Um, tell me a little bit about how your community is responding to you know, the various changes that you're trying to make. Oh, look, I think uh, anything like this, when we talk about papakainga, I've talked about uh, home ownership today, but we're talking about a continuum. So we've got, uh, we've got rental properties there, we've got social housing there, as well as we've got, um, we've got this home ownership program going. And I think in our community, we have to be able to see that there's a vision that's actually spreads across the whole lot. Uh, so what do they think? They think it's awesome. Uh, we're doing, we've got a whole lot of ex-state houses. We've just um, invested $5.5 million redoing up every one of those. We've got housing standards, which we've said, this is the quality of life that we want large of people to be living in, or anybody to be living in. Uh, we've extended that beyond, I mean, this is out of Kainga, this, is, this has gone beyond Kainga, but when you talk about proper Kainga, this is about how do communities live. Uh, so we've done, we've done a whole lot of work like that. The homes that got given back uh, were rubbish. You wouldn't put your dog in it, and I'm sure I'm not going to put our kids in it. So um, I think that our community has seen that there's a real, real passion and desire to lead and to ensure that our children are safe and warm and, and healthy in these homes. Yeah. But I, I'm biased, eh? Yeah. <laughs> I, I've talked about the sort of the usability, the likability factor. Can you translate that a little bit for, for your environment? Uh, yeah, uh, likability. So um, these homes are a lot nicer. Uh, you know, those two people in that video that you saw, both of them currently are living, uh, have got their kids and themselves living in uh, transportable homes and in garages and all of a sudden we're going to put them in homes that are probably uh, on the market, they'd be worth $2 million and we're giving them to them for 650, 650k. So, you know, let's think about that in real, tangible, basic, human, human. Uh, the level and the, the quality of life that these families are going to live in is really good. 
Uh, my nieces, they get their own bedrooms. Auntie, I love that. Uh, they're also intergenerational. So we've said, whānau, you've got to look after your families. Uh, you've got to have your nannies in there, you've got to have your parents, and you've got to have your kids, and all of that's all right. Uh, you've got to be able to share, and you've got to be able to, um, to work with one another, and they've even started doing things like creating their community rules. Uh, they just want, they want a certain life, and we've got to enable them to be able to do that. So I think, you know, physically, they're beautiful, they're really lovely. Uh, also, we put them on the probably one of the toughest streets in Orake. Uh, it's not the nicest street in there, but we've said if we're going to really uh, regenerate this community, let, let's start there. Let's start in the hardest place and be okay with that. So that's where we are. I, I talked at the beginning a bit about you know the relationship between housing and uh, mental and, and physical health. Oh, sure. is, is that is that something that's that's top of mind for you guys? Oh, absolutely. When we did the design, it was really on you know cultural well-being, spiritual well-being, emotional well-being, you know, and making it financially affordable. Uh, those things, those things are fundamental, and make sure that the design suits that. Every part of the design has a story, and, and we want to be able to celebrate that story. So, over the generations, they understand. Even down to the name, we've named uh, the lane down there Arohanui. Uh, I don't know if many people know what Arohanui means, but it's to love. Uh, that's the name that the families chose for them. So, um, you know, spiritually, culturally, socially. Economically, I think, um, you know, my grandparents would be proud about where we are. So it's cool. And your grandchildren. And my grandchildren. <laughs> um, you will have seen there's a, there's a standby Unitech here. They've just launched this um, program, a 12-week program about co-housing. And um, I'm not going to attempt to explain it, but co-housing is um, a bit of a trend worldwide and it's coming to New Zealand. Jeff, you're probably the best person to speak to this. Um, as, as people start, as individuals, people like you and I in this room, people who are interested, as we start to explore how to get more actively involved, as we start to look at this more bottom-up approach, what advice do you give them? There are, there are two ways of doing it. And the typical one is a whole bunch of people get together and they start looking for a piece of land and they find a piece of land but only two-thirds of them like it and then they go to look for another piece and they spend years doing it and then they finally get a piece of land and then they start designing the houses and I think Earthsong took uh, eight or ten years, I can't remember, but it was, and I've talked to guys in Christchurch who after 18 years and three sites they finally gave up because they could never agree. So I don't know if it's advice but the only way I could see in doing what I felt we needed to do in Christchurch was to do it the other way around and say I'll find a piece of land and when I couldn't get people to get involved, I'll even pay to get some plans done and we'll get to the stage of saying, this is what we're going to do. If you like it, buy into it. And if you don't, well, it's obviously not for you. I'm not saying that's the right way. It's just the only way I could see of doing it more quickly. But of course, now I'm left with a site in the middle and I've got uh, 10 houses and <laughs> got to find people. And what we did there was we're, we're trying to create co-housing. We're trying to say, if we design it this way, there's a, a piece of land in the middle which we jointly own, and there are 10 houses around the outside. We also tried to make the, the houses small. I said to the architects, I want uh, four two-bedroom houses of 60 square metres. They gave me 80. I want four three-bedroom houses of 80 square metres. They gave me 100. And I want two four-bedroom houses of about 120, and they gave me 140. So, but, but again, we're trying to say, lots of people don't want that. They want a big house. But you can have a small house, and if you design them carefully, and I think these ones are reasonably well designed, ACOM were involved, they'd be pleased to know. Um, 
I, I think you can get some good outcomes that, yeah, that will lead to the quality of life that people could achieve um, if they went about it the right way. Um, and I'd advise them not to get governments involved. <laughs> All right, just one last question then before I open it up to the floor. Um, I'm one of those people who really like the backstory to understand a little bit more about what's gone on. Has this been a tough ride for you personally? Me? Yes. Yep, it's, it's would, taken... Would you like to expand? <laughs> yeah, well, the earthquakes in Christchurch actually affected a lot of people really significantly in very, a whole range of ways. Um, I couldn't go back to the building I used to be in, blah, blah, blah. My wife lost her job because the library's got closed, etc., etc. And so we got involved. Why was it tough? Well, it was tough because I thought, this is a brilliant idea. Hey, all you guys, you'll get involved with this, won't you? And it's a deafening silence. Everybody you talk to says, it's a great idea, but it's not for me. Mm. Um, and I think the other thing, why was it tough? Because it took me two years to develop things as far as I did, I, I would say, to put it bluntly, the people from the red zone with get up and go had got up and gone by then. Right. Whereas the people that were left there still saying, my life is a disaster. They, they, you have to, as I said, you have to take risk, and people were reluctant to. Mm. So it was tough because we put quite a bit of money at risk, um, and there was a, every chance that the whole thing would fall over. Mm. So it was a bit tough in that respect, but I guess it was just tough that you, sometimes you feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Well, it depends about the materials, doesn't it? <laughs> um, yeah. All right. Who's going to be brave enough to ask a question? Here we go. Where are our roving microphones? There's a man right up the front here. We'll third row back. I'll just introduce yourself. Testing, testing. <laughs> My name's Greg Stevenson. Um, our family's a little bit in the same uh, situation as Jeff. We're intending to uh, develop some land over the next couple of years. One of the things that uh, we're interested in doing as far as spreading risk is concerned is um, investigating the crowdfunding source of uh, gaining finance. Now, in the last two years, we've gone from zero crowdfunding to projects being funded to the tens of millions of dollars. Now, that should mean that in the next couple of years, we'll have projects that are funded to the $100 million. What is your view on that? And I guess it was a bit too early for you, Jeff, to even consider that, but do you think that that's a possibility that may crop up in the next couple of years? I think the advantage of crowdfunding is that up to, I think it's only $2 million per project, you don't have to go through this whole rigmarole of, um, what do you call them? Prospectuses. Pros prospectuses and, and, and drama. And they're there to protect people, but actually they get in the way of people as well, and crowdfunding could avoid that. But if you had crowdfunding, I'd... Well, our project, which was a reasonable size, I suppose there were 40 sites, I think that was about five million bucks. Um, and you could have done it with less in terms of crowdfunding. Would it work? Are, are you, yeah, it depends whether you're going to get investors or people who want to own the sections. We ended up in a project with a lot of investors, which is not what I wanted. I wanted people who wanted to own their own home because that is a group of people that avoid risk. Remember I said you've got the risk of who's going to buy it at the end? So two-thirds of our people were actually people who were taking that risk, but hey, beggars can't be choosers. I would take anybody who wanted to make the whole project work. 
and I see a problem for you in crowdfunding, um, what sort of people are you going to be appealing to investors who are taking risk, or are you going to be crowdfunding for people who want to be involved? Maybe that could work. I'd have to think about it for a while. Right, any other questions from the audience? Here we go, there's a couple in the middle here. They're being snuck up from behind there. <laughs> Helen Haslam, I'm a resident of Ursong Eco neighbourhood out in Ranui in Waitakere City. Um, I just did want to say that we have had a co-housing community here in Auckland for the last 14 years, <laughs> and we're residents of it, and beside me is Robin Allison, who was actually the architect, very visionary architect, who actually saw the vision, the sort of things that we've been hearing about today, really, so she's been way out ahead of the field, really, and we'd really love to invite you to come out and see us. We do run... Um, um, open days four times a year and you can look up for that on our website. So that's just a little plug to say that it is happening and it has been happening here in Auckland for a long time. We live very happily together and um, I know we've had some good contact with Ngāti Pātū over what we're doing. But I do have a question for you Helen and that's how on earth did you persuade the council to allow you to have a building for two cars for all the apartments that you have? They think it's fantastic. It's a special housing area and um, the council's more than happy to encourage that kind of innovative development. At the end of the day, I don't imagine you'd get to do it in uh, Hobsonville Point and I suspect it wouldn't work. But, <laughs> you, know, it, um, you know, it also gives us a lot of points towards the Homestar rating. Uh, I think the other point is have a mark. <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing, Helen, when you're, when you're talking, is that you're tailoring solutions to different problems, different areas. And you know, different it, sites. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That wouldn't work in Hobsonville Point, say. It wouldn't mm. work um, in Pukekoe. Mm. Um, mm. But in Dominion Road, mm. hey, it's, uh, or just off Dominion Road, it's got a real opportunity of, mm. of flying. Yeah, OK. Um, another question. There was someone else down here, uh, just a few rows in front of our last speaker. Hi, Helga Arlington. I'm a local board member, but this is more of a question from a baby boomer. Um, none of the speakers have specially referred to alternatives to housing for older people. Mention was made of retirement villages, building retirement villages. I think I've had the conversation with others of my generation many, many times. Please, Lord, save me from a retirement village. I don't want to be managed like that. So where the retirement, where, do, where does housing for older people who are independents sit with the panel? <laughs> I'll start then, thank you very much. Yeah, we, <clears throat> whilst we do build retirement villages, we also, one of our biggest growth areas is in the uh, more mature uh, market. Um, the, the market is changing and is evolving. One of the other areas we've got involved in which I I actually love it, it's a great idea. Uh, people have heard of Abbey Fields. Um, Abbey Fields, there's a problem, we've just finished one in Christchurch, and it's got 12 individual bedrooms, they've got a small seated area, they've got a, a kitchenette, and they've got a walking shower. There's lock-up, they have their own, and they have a little patio area. I was not aware of it until it was brought to my attention. The elder, a lot of elder now are lonely, 
This is sort of a part of our society that's lonely. And by Abbeyfields, not only do they help that part of society out, they also help out the housing. It sounds crazy. But by building one house with 12 individual bedrooms, there's 11 spare houses somewhere. So that's one. The other one is, I agree with you, I don't want to be into a, a, an elderly person's you know, various models of a license to occupy and all that sort of stuff. But I do want to be in an area where actually I can go on holiday if I want. I can go and visit the children. I can lock up. And that is part of what we call a whole of life development. We try and do the bigger, bigger developments whereby everybody, whatever stage they are in life, has somewhere they can be. They don't have to move to the other side of the city to find a house or a, an apartment that meets their needs. It's all within the same community. It's all within the same neighbourhood. So you keep the support, your support networks are there. And you're there to support, God forbid, babysitting the grandchildren or whatever. But you are there uh, if you have a fractured family. You don't have to have father lives on one side of the city because he can't find anything that suits his needs and mother and the children live elsewhere. Is trying to keep them together as a community. Sorry. Apparently, one of the things in the um, one thing I didn't touch on is most of our all of our developments have what we call bump spaces, so that neighbours can bump into one another, create that sense of community amongst the people who call our buildings home, and we see this in our development at the Isaac and at the Turing. The Isaac is probably, in some respects, probably the average age is over 50. Uh, because it's a great alternative um, for, you know, there is that communal space so that when you want to go and hang with your neighbours, with other people, you want a bit more space than you've got in your ordinary home, you've got somewhere you can do that whilst having the convenience of something which is lock up and leave. Um, you know, it's, again, it's not for everybody, but it does get you until the time when you need hospital care. Uh, it's a really acceptable alternative. All right, Jeff, just briefly, and then we'll just take one final question from the audience. I'd just say that we thought that part of the market for what we did in the centre would be old people. And that's why we, a number of them were two-bedroom homes, 60, 80 square metres. That's brief. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Last question from you. Peter, Peter Sanders uh, from Homes of Choice. We provide um, accommodation for people with intellectual disabilities, so we've got around 80 homes in Auckland and others around different centres. One of the issues that we're finding at the moment is that with the cost of housing, we're being forced to areas outside of Auckland, which so by default, we're actually forcing people with disabilities to extremities of Auckland rather than being in and around the community. And a lot of the solutions that have been presented when you've got homes that are around the 600,000 up to a million dollars just absolutely exclude people with disabilities. And it's a real challenge, I think, for any city. Mm. And I think that's an area that we need to keep some focus on. Uh, fortuitously, on Friday, I just picked up a contract for five new community group housings from Housing New Zealand. But unfortunately, they're in Christchurch. So, so, so we do that. We've actually built 18 of those in the last two years around the South Island. Um, it is difficulty because, I mean, I do feel for you. I live in Christchurch, but I feel for you, Aucklanders. We've, we're selling houses now, three-bedroom houses in Christchurch for 349000 including land. <laughs> so, so the houses of Christchurch. But you're right, disabled are difficult. It's the same with all social housing. A lot of social housing being 
push to the periphery because of the pricing. IRRS doesn't cut it in quite a lot of the areas, but it does in others. Um, I think the community group housing is a good idea. They seem to have a little bit more budget. Mm. Well, definitely some, some challenges going forward. And as I said, it's, it's a suite of solutions. And I guess us being, part, being here today and hearing this stuff is, is about being part of that solution. Um, so just to wrap up, this is the last Auckland conversation for this year. And I've seen the lineup for next year, and it's pretty good. So I'm sure you'll want to be part of it too. Uh, please take a look at the Unicitech stand on your way out, those who are interested. I'm sure you guys have got something to offer them and, and perhaps the global trend started here. <laughs> um, look, from my perspective, it's really important to um, put some of the great thinking that we hear and these ideas from, from these events, give it some momentum and, and translate that into action. So to put tonight's uh, discussion into some context, we've got Matt Heal. Now, Matt's the Director of Construction Services at AECOM, and I've got the privilege of working quite closely with Matt on a number of things, and I believe he's a real visionary, a real uh, conceptual strategic thinker, and um, he's well-versed about, about regeneration and, and development not just in Auckland but around the country so I'm hoping we're going to hear some personal reflections on his vote of thanks Thank you also to the panel and the audience for the questions this evening so my job's just to quickly bring the curtain down and we've, we've had some wonderful insights and you know we've seen evidence that there's some fantastic um, innovation happening across Auckland um, and New Zealand I mean, I think the challenge for us now is to um, make these practices mainstream. Um, and, and so what I wanted to pick up is some of these sort of strategic themes where um, innovation has a real role to play. Um, and as city shapers, we need to continue to push on with these themes. And in particular, I wanted to highlight uh, issues in, uh, for Auckland about density, um, about the scale of our industry, um, about capital. And I think, um, I think there's also a role um, for the rest of New Zealand to play. So if I touch on density, you know, we need to engage um, around the changing demographics um, and we must keep on pushing the benefits of density to ensure that the efficient use of um, our land. Um, our houses have been getting bigger as our households have been getting smaller. Um, and so the, for me, the point that Penny made and, and that you made, Helen, um, I think is absolutely crucial for the sustainable and the vibrant and the efficient use of our, uh, of our land in our city. And so we must make that connection between the um, efficient use of land, the vibrancy that people bring to our urban places, and the critical mass required to make infrastructure viable. Um, the second point is about scale. So um, um, there's definitely um, some great examples of action here, you know, but we need to embrace this issue of scale head on. Um, um, we need bolder action. You know, I'd contend that we need more structural change, more intervention from central and local um, government because there's a whole lot of amazing but really quite tricky multi-site, multi-stakeholder um, um, opportunities that we need to make work. Um, and <clears throat> Uh, some serious development at scale will help balance the, the supply and demand um, issue that's, that's plaguing Auckland so much. Um, but it will also produce some of the efficiencies and the economies of scale um, that address some of the underlying cost issues uh, in the sector. I wanted to touch on capital because all of this requires um, more capital in the system, you know, whether it's crowdfunded or, or otherwise. Um, and if we don't address that, you know, we'll have lots of lofty ambitions, um, but we simply won't be able to keep up. Um, you know, we know that Australia, for example, invested billions in, in when they decentralised and, and sought mixed-tenure um, housing um, outcomes. Um, and so we need more and we need better deals and we need to recognise the benefits, you know, require capital investment. 
Um, and, and as an example, we worked with Auckland Council um, during the course of this year on um, looking at large-scale mixed-tenure uh, housing developments. Um, and I can report that you know these projects, you know, they require um, at, at scale, they require eye-watering amounts of capital um, uh, when you think about um, uh, uh, to, to to generate a subsidy or to replace a cross subsidy in a, in a mixed tenure development, and which is really important to understand if we're going to create um, social, affordable, and and market housing. Um, and so we think we need our key decision makers and our key agencies to really have their heads around this. Um, um, and they need to have the avenues and they need to have the appetite to fund these outcomes. I'll skip through uh, just in the interest of time. I, I thought the, the final footnote might be uh, a, you know, a topic closer to home and, and some themes from tonight that we might carry with us you know, back in Auckland. So, um, and, and, and it does highlight some complexity, but we need to keep facing these issues. So even if we crack the land supply issues and the consenting issues, and perhaps we find ways of um, bringing serious capital uh, into the sector, um, I think those are both very achievable prospects. We're still going to be confronted with some of the points that Peter raised about the limits of our supply chain. And, and that's why I'd like to see some sort of parallel and enduring focus on things like skills, innovation, and, and quality in particular. So Peter, you alerted, alluded to skills and productivity, you know, and, and I'm not sure that we yet, um, as an industry, place enough value on the vocational skills that help create and shape our city. You know, I'm not sure we're doing enough to help our kids uh, into the industry. Um, and I think, the, um, I think the whole industry needs to step up and place more of an emphasis on productivity, again, a bit like what you've demonstrated, because um, if we don't do that, you know, there's a real risk that the whole market will be disrupted and the underlying cost issues won't be addressed. Um, um, innovation, you know, again, we, we still um, slavishly put one brick on top of two like we have for the last, you know, two millennia uh, in many respects. And, you know, so we could definitely do more to innovate in our sector. And again, you know, we've seen some of this great stuff. But I think there's actually a bit of a challenge for Auckland because, you know, we see a lot of um, quite innovative um, um, design and building projects outside of Auckland. Probably I would wager more so than we see in the Auckland market. There's some great stuff happening in Queenstown, some great stuff happening in, in Christchurch and Nelson. So I think you know, um, perversely, we also need to be more demanding as a community in Auckland to see that uh, this, this uh, innovation is happening. And then finally, on uh, quality and sustainability, you know, um, you know, are we creating the places that we want to live in? You know, will they last generations? You know, uh, will they endure? We have we have one shot every 80 or 100 years every time we root something into the earth. So is it worthy? You know, will it endure? Can it adapt um, as, as the needs change? You know, would we want it built next door to us? You know, and again, you sort of alluded to some of these points, Helen. Um, um, and if not, you know, do we think about the fact that this just makes nimbyism stronger and it, it much harder for the community to create the outcomes that we want? So these are all very real challenges, but um, I think there's some examples there today that see that uh, the norm can be broken and, and, that, um, and that we need to push on and, and address these and continue to impress these. So then finally, I thought it'd be quite cool to just reflect on a year uh, of Auckland Conversations. So it's been a very um, busy and rewarding year for Auckland Conversations series. There's been 15 different conversations have taken place on topics ranging from building peaceful communities, addressing uh, Auckland transport issues, happiness and well-being, the virtues of public art, increasing urbanisation and how to create a bicycle lane using a piece of sticky tape. Um, the media channel has been established so uh, people globally can in, uh, engage in the conversation wherever they are streaming live, uh, uh, streaming the Auckland conversations online. Uh, anyone can register for these upcoming events and they can watch past events in full. There's a great, uh, there's a great database on the, on the website there. Uh, and there's, so there's a download, you can download podcasts of the past sessions, check out the image galleries, the, uh, share the content across all of the um, 
social media accounts. So um, the team would love to hear from you and engage uh, around ideas for 2016. The program's uh, getting pretty set. Um, um, so, uh, so really now it's just uh, for me to say thanks very much for the team, the Auckland Council team and the Auckland Conversations team for you know, a great 2015. Uh, and, and for the sponsors who have supported it. And, uh, and really, that's it for 2015. So, uh, kia ora, good night, uh, safe travels, and happy Christmas. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors, Jib and Resine. For more information, visit our website, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios. 